Hello. Hi. How are you? Doing well, doing well. I'm very excited to have you here today. We are um, doing a reversal of what we've done before. So I was very honored to be on Jen's podcast. And now Jen is here on our podcast. So Jen, thank you so much. Um, You are an artist, teacher, writer, and mental health advocate. You're also the host of the podcast, Not As Crazy As You Think, which is a genius name. Um, Could you tell us a bit more about your podcast, your teaching, and and how you balance all of this? Well... First of all, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much, Emma. I'm so happy that we can have this conversation. It means so much. Um, Yeah, I mean, balance. I'm just learning how to balance, I guess. You know, right now I am um, trying to continue doing this podcast. It's very important to me. I was a teacher for many years, and then I went into body and face painting, which was a fun thing to do while I was at home with my son raising him. Now I'm heading back into the classroom, which is like so much fun. So I get to now teach instead of high school English, I'm teaching elementary art, which is great because as an artist, I feel like I'm just always doing art. So the balance really is something that I'm learning to do as we go. Um, Cause I haven't really been doing this much uh, out of my house work in a long time. But uh, thrilled to be back into the classrooms. And I'm in New York City doing it. So it's a lot of fun. I feel like I'm really making a difference. Uh, I love that. Yeah, it feels like it's your, your destiny. Um, we met through our shared experience, experiences with Pharmacy School Harm. Um, would you be able to share your story with, with the listeners? Would love to. Um, I have a very interesting story. I think my story is a perfect way to get into talking about how not um, ideal the psychiatric pharmaceutical approach is. And it's because it never had to go in that direction. And I think a lot of people, when they go into psychiatry and they have experiences with pharmaceutical harm, they often say that. They say, you know, I wish it was something different. I wish it took a different approach. I wish I had a listener, somebody listening to me before I I started taking these drugs. So my situation was similar in that way. I ended up when I was 22 years old, going over to India to see a friend. And um, some things happened in the, in the, the household where there was some cultural misunderstandings. And I was basically asked, you know, as a young, naive 22 year old coming from America saying, probably the wrong thing here and there. I was asked to leave. But the problem was I ended up getting ill and really ill. So I was completely alone in India and I didn't know what to do. There were This was during the times of no phones, no internet, you know, 1994. Like I was totally, you know, just hoping for the best, but I really started getting more and more sick. Anyway, uh, ended up getting an emergency flight home barely made it there, found this wonderful uh, taxi driver who ended up saving my life. Um, And I was just like, just praying to, you know, hope that I could get through this nightmare of an illness all by myself. Thought that I might just pass out, never to wake up. And I ended up hearing like these voices in the middle of this, you know, repentance, I guess, you know, wondering if I was going to end up dying there. And these voices led me home and I ended up getting safely to the, the airplane on the way home. I ended up having a near death experience. So this is where it gets funky because a lot of people who 
have trouble believing these things, they have trouble believing me. And that's totally fine. Everyone can. But the problem was when I got back into America and I told people this because I had something of a traumatic breakdown when I got back, realizing what I had just gone through, realizing that I might not have made it if I didn't listen to those voices guiding me. And and also realizing the dif- discrepancy between what poverty looks like, okay, in other parts of the world and how people are living and what I would had just come from, which was this New York City life, you know, in America with privilege, with um, plenty of opportunity, seeing that and really having the impact of the trauma at the same time, it just blew my mind. So I definitely had something of a breakdown, ended up in the hands of psychiatry. And basically, they didn't want to hear anything about the trauma, which was so strange to me because I was somewhat aware of what labels were, these DSM labels. Um, But I thought for sure if they were going to label me with anything, they'd give me PTSD because of the experience I had. But they had no interest in discussing the context of what happened. Like, what led me in there so that I was, you know, why was I hysterical when I was in there? Why, you know, what was I referring to when I was saying things? Like, they just basically wrote a bunch of notes in my records and just started saying that I was, you know, psychotic, um, disconnected from reality, you know, all of these different things. And they stuck to that story from then on. They never wanted to, in fact, I didn't really talk about any of the India experience of the trauma until about 10 years later, after I was strung up on antipsychotics for all that time. So my 20s was just an absolute nightmare from that point on. I had so much promise. I was, you know, head of my class. I was a double major. I was, you know, doing off-Broadway when I, right before I went to India. I was pursuing all these wonderful artistic creative endeavors and everything was destroyed because I just couldn't think. I couldn't talk. There were there were months and, and years where I was literally unable to do anything. I was completely disabled, just unable to read, unable to, you know, do much of anything at all except sit down and watch TV and eat Snickers bars. I just remember this image of like I said, what well, this is my life. But they were so adamant that I had this brain illness without ever really getting to the heart of anything. And I knew because of what happened, because it was so unique, because it was out of the country, it was in the, in the, in the middle of the airplane in the air. I said, they're wrong. They are 100% wrong. And I'm going to prove it. It took me my whole life and I'm still trying, but I'm going to do it. John, what a story. I mean, (laughs) I, I just, there are so many, so many elements to this. Um, I think you really like one of the strongest kind of points from from your story is the fact that they did not address. Well, I say your story, everybody's story. I feel this mm-hmm. is very universal, um, but really, really sort of shines through in, in your story is the the lack of addressing the trauma and just immediately labeling you as something or with something right. based on what a few minutes, a few mm-hmm. seconds at mm-hmm. one of the worst times of your life, and it's it. That in itself is, is crazy to me because we all we all go through something or another at some point in our life, right? You can right. be considered the most sane, um, intelligent, high potential person, and and then something happens and you struggle with that because guess what? You're human and mm-hmm. not everything is smooth sailing. 
And then if you're then in front of people that get to dictate the label that you wear for the rest of your life or however long they decide on that for, you're at the mercy of a system that for us, because this happened to us, I mean, now that I'm thinking about it, we actually got prescribed these meds pretty much at the same age. Yeah, Um, yes. And old enough, old enough to kind of know a lot of things, but perhaps not quite old enough to to fully understand. And maybe that's not about age. Maybe that's about experience. Because I think we both, we've shared our story enough times with people that some people get it and some people are still dubious. And that transcends generations and ages. So I don't think it's about age per se. Um, why, Why do you think this is happening? Why do you think you and I and many, many other people got caught up in this I'm going to say trap. Um, I don't know how intentional it is, but why do you think this is happening? I think it's due to a number of reasons. And what I find, and, and you know, my, my journey has been very, I mean, really difficult. I would say that only within the last five or six years of my life have I felt that I'm coming home to myself. So I'm, I'm 50. And I, I'd like to, to say that because I like, for people to realize that no matter where they are in this process, you trust me, you'll get there if you change your mind about it, because it took me all these years and I eventually did it or I am doing it and I'm in the process of doing it. So I think the reason why we've gotten here is that there's a few things. The biomedical model is one of the biggest problems. Okay. And they treat, they want to treat psychiatry as though they are experts in the field of where we are, what the mind is. Now, the problem is they stop looking at the mind. I mean, psychology is with the root word psyche, and that comes from the soul, okay? So they stop looking at what the the essence of the mind is, which is much deeper than, you know, the biomedical model says, which is basically, okay, you, you exist inside your brain as tissue, as, you know, genetics, as all these different components, but it's just allocating all of your thoughts and your, and your emotions to physical representations in your brain. Now we both know, and many, everyone knows, in fact, even psychiatrists know because they're denying their own minds. If we believe that every single thought and emotion that we have is somehow delineated in some kind of physical representation, that's just really naive. I mean, it boils it down to something that's really has never been proven. And they're really not on the the edge of proving any of that. So this assumption that this is the case is really coming from this idea that all of our you know, they, they're trying to reduce everything into saying that the mind works the same way the body does. But the mind is non-local. When we experience things that are, you know, mind elevating, it's usually not linked to anything inside our bodies. That's not to say that our body or biology can't have an influence on our mind. Clearly, people experience this all the time. You experience something similar as well. There were things going on in your physical body that led to anxiety or anxiety and depression and all of these other types of even manic thoughts, they can come from unstable issues with your biology. There's no doubt to that. Okay. There's definitely like clearly a lot of people who are labeled bipolar, who have trouble sleeping. They, for instance, are, you know, um, 
they might have issues with inflammation that keep them up at night, or, you know, there's all these different things that you can take care of. But when we look at our expression of either illness or health as only biological, that's where these problems start because then they're, they're completely ignoring environmental issues and these other things outside of ourselves that contribute to our sadness, to our depression, to our anxiety, to whatever it is. Many, many people, I know in America particularly, okay, here it's all about work. If you can't get to work for some reason, then you have a problem with adapting to the system, okay? And the system is the capitalist system. If you can't some, in some capacity contribute to that in the way that is, is considered normal, then you know what? There's, there's, you have a problem and let's find what the problem is and let's give you a quick fix and let's give you a pill to do that so that you could get back to work. That's usually the way things go. And what I also find is that a lot of people who are labeled, we tend to be in this category of artists, of outside the box thinkers, of people who, you know what, we're really not happy with the status quo because yes, we can't fit in, but maybe it's because we want something new. We want to change the status quo so that we can bring about a new reality. But that's not the way it is. The way the way it is is the people who are in charge right now wanted to stay the way it wanted to stay as is, so that they can continue to, I guess you know, profits from it. And there's so many people who are lost in the process. We saw during COVID that so many more people were able to come out and admit that they were experiencing mental distress. I don't even like to say illness because to me. First of all, we get an illness, we can heal from the illness. This happens in our physical world, in our physical illnesses. Why can't it happen with a mental illness? If you're aligning the mental illness as the same as the physical illness, physical illnesses we heal from. They don't want that with the mental illness. They want it to be like, okay, you have a problem with your thought problems, you know, then that's it. You're going down in history till the day you die as a problem. And why? Bottom line, profit. It's big pharma. This is the biomedical model is the thing that drives big pharma. And now they're linked. This was not the case prior to 1980s. Okay. In the 1980s, that's when big pharma went nuts with it. And they aligned themselves so well with psychiatry that one, it's, it's one and the same now. I mean, I think the future of psychiatry, if they want to get out of this, this, these lies, then they need to start thinking about deep, uh, deprescribing people. But I don't, I don't know when that's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a pretty um, extensive issue um, globally. Um, it does seem to be on a level of its own in the states. Just just through conversations that we've had, I've sort of become more aware of the scale and scope and um, severity of of the system. Um, one thing that I wanted to ask you before I forget, um, based on your story, is now now with the experience and understanding that you have regarding trauma, how have you approached kind of addressing that original um, trauma experience? Is that something that if you could go back in time and you were one of the, the doctors or a family member, how, how would you approach it now? It's a fantastic uh, question because I've had that question hanging over the back of my mind my whole life, probably to help me figure out what could have been done and what should could be done for others as well. My situation was such that 
my parents were not educated. They trust in authoritarian, um, you know, structures. They always trusted medicine and the doctors. And so when these people claim that they were doing something in the name of medicine and in the name of health, my parents believed them. So I knew from that point forward, like, wow, I'm going to have to contend with this. You know, like I either have to become the, the, the most successful person ever to prove to my parents that I'm okay, which was absolutely 100% impossible because I was on these heavily late, these, the, the strongest antipsychotics around during the nineties before the atypicals came out. Um, so it was impossible. I was disabled. So what should I have done? I mean, I wasn't even, you know, I, I was raised a Catholic um, and I pulled away from that for many, many reasons. Um, I'm not, you know, anti-Christian though. I mean, like I, I'm okay with, with, with the, the story, the Christian story. But the thing is, like, I fell into just believing, I guess, secular, the secular story, the narrative. And that doesn't have all of the truth in it either. So I didn't know where to go. I did, there were no peer, any peer support systems there then. Uh, you know, what, what do people do when these things, these traumas happen? I think it's a still a very pressing and important question because it's almost like we have to, as individuals, develop a safety net for ourselves in for mental distress experiences so that we can take care of ourselves and we know where to go. Do you have those five friends that you can have that conversation with? You know what I mean? Do you have something that some kind of um, uh, coping mechanism that helps, whether it be, you know, uh, pouring yourself into a creative endeavor, whether it be art or music or, you know, um, can you uh, escape somehow through physical activity? You know, like, I think it's, that's why I think it's so important to have the conversation with people as to, you know, how do you cope on a daily basis when these things arise? Because a lot of us don't have those systems. And certainly the systems in place aren't there for us. There, there's no alternative except for psychiatry and for medicine when these, you know, these very high level traumas happen. So it's, I think it's a, it's a very good question. And to this day, you know, looking back, I, I think it was my destiny to experience it because there, I, I don't know if I could have been quote unquote saved and redirected in, in, in another capacity. I mean, maybe if I had gone to my priest at the time, I don't know, you know, yeah, and I think, thank you for being so honest about that because, I, yeah, it's a question that's hung over my head for some time as well. Like, what what is it that could have, would have been a better direction and a better choice for me to make? Um, and, and it's difficult to know with absolute certainty because we can't run like a test simulation on what would have happened. Um, I think one of the issues that we we face as a, as a society and for a lot of people is we don't have enough awareness or understanding of the issues or rather of the solutions and, and um, things that are being offered and what the potential consequences of those are. We don't have enough um, informed awareness around the choices. Therefore, well, what are the choices if people aren't aware of them? And right. what are the choices if the things that are being presented to them, they don't have the full understanding of the consequences associated with that? Yes. 
So I, yeah, it's a very difficult question. As you were talking, um, uh, I, I had this, this remembrance of a, um, a page from Baylis's book. Um, I don't know if you've read it. Um, she, she went through, she's British as well. I think she went through pharmacy school harm. She wrote a book about benzos that my, my brother ended up buying for me. And in there, she, she makes some suggestions on how to, um, what book is it? It's a very good question. I will find it. I'll send it to you. And I'll also post it in the links for anyone um, listening to this. Um, but she, the reason why I bring it up is she, she suggests a very specific thing that I think we can use as a symbolism for at least a kind of temporary stopgap solution, which is she suggests if you're having a bad day, which as we know through being harmed by these drugs, you have good days, you have bad days. And it's a very non-linear process of recovery that's incredibly challenging on, on the bad days. And you, you can forget that you've ever felt good. <laughs> you can just mm-hmm. feel like your whole life is, is surrounded by these, these torturous symptoms. So she suggests just getting a shoebox and just putting uh, like little letters that you write to yourself on the good days or um, memories of enjoyable moments or um, tickets of things to look forward to, just anything that kind of raises your spirit and raises your um, well-being. And I think I kind of feel like that's a really good um, idea for how, how we approach potential solutions, right? A yes. shoebox of possibilities that is very personal. It, yes. There isn't a one size fits all answer, A, because we don't know what the answer is, and B, every single person is different. Art might work for one person, music might work for somebody else, um, talking with those friends, a combination, like it's it's as unique as our DNA profile in terms of solutions that are there. So I feel like a shoebox analogy is just such a personal way of, of uh, synthesizing the possibilities out there in your own in your own way. Yeah, I think that is perfect. And in fact, you know, it's interesting that I love the analogy also of the shoebox. It's like if the shoe fits, you know, I mean, it's like your shoe, you know, but it's true. And I remember when I was going through um, trying to organize a little bag, I actually had bags to do this. I gave it to each friend. I said, you know what, the next time I go through this kind of experience, because I tend to go into these states after this experience I had, um, I ended up having a few more of these, I call them shamanic journeys because they resemble what a lot of people go through in shamanic cultures where they kind of like are in between worlds. And I feel like my in between worlds was because I ended up on the other side, but I was like kind of caught in between. And I'm always like kind of in between when I go into these states. So these deep states have popped up again in, in these experiences but how do I get home? I never really know how to get home. So I actually created these bags with things like that you're discussing, like not so much like I love the items that she chose to put in or she's um, requesting others to do because I, I didn't think of doing something so personal and so like memory oriented. I think that would be perfect. But I put in things like, you know, like little coloring books and like, you know, little magazines that triggered certain things and just like a whole bunch of items that meant something to me so that if I was in that space, I would be able to kind of re-identify with my, my personal, you know, uh, I guess profile of a person, because a lot of times we can go in those States, you disconnect from who you are as an ego. 
So that's why I know it looks a little nutty in front of people, but if we started having conversations about what these states of mind actually are and what they can do for us and how we can direct them, we would then open up all of these doors of, you know, conversation of, of possible future um, explorations when it comes to areas of the mind. We're not even going there. Here it is, 2022. We're not even discussing things that could have been discussed or or learned about years ago. And, and here it is, you know, we're still addicted to this, okay, well, you need drugs, this, this perspective. So it's very, very disheartening. But I love those ideas because that to me, I think I'm going to make the shoebox like this weekend. Yeah, I know. And also a shoebox, I just feel like you can decorate it and customize it. Yeah, it could be a whole thing. Yeah, but I was just, I was going to pipe up there because um, I i mean, we don't know what we don't know. And I, I am just really curious as to how much people do know about the minds behind the scenes, right? It's one thing to put it out there publicly. Oh, it's biochemical. Oh, this is the answer. It's another thing to know the truth. Um, I, I'm going to, I I need to like, find validation for what I'm about to say, but a friend of mine told me that I think, I think it might be the CIA, which is why I need to find confirmation to back this up. Um, but apparently they've proven that astral projection is real. Mm-hmm. Right. So like if this, you know, it's the same with things like UFOs and aliens, that it's yes. pretty much proven, right. but it's kind of drip feeding the masses with that information. Right. So, I, I think we have to really question what is it that we're seeing as the branding of pharmaceuticals? Right. What is it that we're seeing as the narrative behind um, why we supposedly need this? Yes. And what is it that we don't know? Because right. I think a lot of us, I, and I think this goes hand in hand with being creative and being sensitive. I think a lot of us can sense um, other other layers of understanding about things. Mm-hmm. Um and and for some reason that's shunned, and uh, that's why your podcast name is so is so great. Not as crazy as you think, because it's you know it makes me think. Well, who who's the crazy who's the crazy here? Like the yeah, like we could, there's so many things that that we could say um, on the subject. The time for part one of this podcast is coming to a close, so I will close this down now. But we'll be back in a couple of minutes for part two.